Hey everybody, this is Sam, that girl with the curls, bringing you yet another episode, a wonderful episode of the podcast. Uh, This one is episode 28 with Aaron Diaz, who uh, you might know as the owner, creator, writer, and artist for Dresden Kodak, the webcomic, which is actually like different stories like Hob and currently Dark Science. Uh, We have been trying to kind of get together and chat for a while now. I've, I've seen Aaron at a lot of cons. I follow him on Twitter, everything like that. And we finally found a time that worked for us, and it was a great conversation. We, we get into a lot of stuff, a lot of nerdy stuff about uh, not only his webcomic and science and philosophy and all that, but also we start talking about Tolkien and Middle Earth and you know uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and whatnot, as well as some Jurassic Park and dinosaur stuff, because, you know, who doesn't want to talk about dinosaurs? Uh, so yeah, uh, give it a listen. I hope you enjoy it, and you'll come back for more. All right, uh, have a great one, and and uh, enjoy the show. Ready or do you need to get some water or anything like that? No, I'm good to go. Excellent. Then we shall start now. Um, Aaron Diaz, welcome to That Girl with the Curls. Thank you for joining me here today. Uh, hi, thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, how are you feeling after the news that The Daily Show is losing Jon Stewart? <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's, it's an end of an era. <laughs> so, it is the end, I feel like it's the end of my 20s, you know? Like, yeah. I, I'm 31 now and it's... For the entirety of my adult life, it's like, oh yeah, you know, John Stewart, and I just don't know. I just don't know how to feel. It's weird. I, everyone's like really upset, but I'm just kind of like, oh, oh. yeah, so this was gonna happen. It's like those stages of grieving that you're going through. Like, uh-huh. is this denial right now? I think I'm in denial. <laughs> I think it's tempered by the fact that John Oliver is just killing it right now. That is show. true. So I'm like, okay, I have enough funny news right now. Yeah, and Colbert's gonna come back eventually, just with more of the entertainment side, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. He's still gonna have. I I want to hope he'll have topical stuff. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, I just I just got that news. I'm like, no, what am yeah. I? Do- what's happening? <laughs> like up is down, left is right. That that's it. Just pack it all in, people. <laughs> it's like game over. <laughs> um. Well. So today, uh, actually, I should probably say what you, what you do for a living. Um, sure. Why not? <laughs> I'm really good at this, I swear to God. Um, you are the owner, creator, writer, and artist for Justin Kodak, and the uh, currently, right now, the storyline is Dark Science, uh, which you just put out, uh, as of today, this recording, you put out number 40. Is it true? Yes? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I just actually want to briefly talk about the, the, the latest issue, which, um, uh, I mean, you've been gearing towards something with, uh, with Kim from the beginning. I mean, you had the Hobbes storyline, uh, with, yeah. with the, um, the singularity and, and everything like that. Uh, where are you, where do you, uh, see dark science kind of leaning towards at this point? It's, it's hard. It's hard to say. Um. I have I have a specific vision in mind, and it is okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go back. I'll, I'll I'll compare it to Hob. I think that'll be easy. Okay. Um, Hob was a very 
Mm-hmm. It was more about uh, I have I have these big plans for Kim, and I have for a long time, and they go through phases. Okay. And phase one was introducing her through one shots and me kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with the character. Mm-hmm. So you know, I did a lot of single page stories, uh, just kind of you know establishing who she is, and then Hob is kind of. Her origin story, in a weird way, like, that establishes, like, the concrete idea of who that character is. Before that, you just saw glimpses of the character, uh, you know, of her personality and stuff like that. But Hob was like, okay, this is the start of her story, mm-hmm. her real story. And then I went back and did, you know, more single-page stories for a couple of years, and then I did Dark Science, and it's kind of the same thing, where Dark Science is kind of like, I guess, phase four. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's her coming into like genuine adulthood because mm-hmm. uh, I think in Hobbs she's like 15, 16 she's, she's, a, little, she's a little off you know and, yeah. as any teenager would be <laughs> and Hobbs is about a very self-contained story about uh, what people do how different people react to the unknown into the future because mm. you have you know uh, Kim's attitude you have and then you have the time colonists and all that and <laughs> what and, and a lot of people have asked and sometimes it's even a criticism where it's like I don't didn't understand what happened at the end of Hob. I didn't understand, you know, what went down. And, and that's really the, I know it's, it seems like a cop out, but it really is the point is that it's not, there's not one explanation as to what's happening because it's about people not really understanding what's going on. It's more about how everyone's reacting to it. It's, it's and, an interesting story in terms yeah. of like, um, cause the end, there's no real like sense of closure uh-huh. and, and it's, it's what we're used to in kind of like the Western tradition of storytelling is like, okay, you have a story arc and then there's closure and then the next thing starts. Um, yeah. whereas, whereas yeah, Hob doesn't necessarily have that. It just kind of like, it's, it starts something else and you're like, you're waiting for what that is because yeah. I mean, even in the story proper, I saw it very much too as a Kim coming to terms with stuff with her mother as well. Right, right. So there's like different types of closure happening or not happening. <laughs> Yeah, I made I made a really conscious decision that I the only the only real like finality to that story was just her figuring out who she was and, and what she really wanted to do with herself, mm-hmm. and then um, that begins to me the full character because she's also has prosthetics at that point. And that, yeah. that to me is really Kim. You know, before that she's just a kid, and um, and Dark Science is about okay, well she is this cyborg character, she is this inventor. Um, but she's always kind of been in this bubble, and this, with with Dark Science, it's about establishing the world. Mm-hmm. With Hob and the previous stories, there was really no real sense of location. Um, it could have really happened anywhere, mm-hmm. and this was because I knew I knew that if I tackled world building too early, it would be terrible. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I, I it would just be the worst. And um, the with with Dark Science, it was time to kind of introduce the readers to the world that I had been planning for a really long time. Um, and it's a complicated world, uh, <laughs> and it isn't just the city of Nephilopolis. Obviously, that's the focus of dark science. Um, but beyond that, just the, the fact that um, it, that's really the first reveal that Kim does not live in, however you want to call it, our world, the present day. Yeah, you want to call the, it, yeah, the real world. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, the way I generally like to describe it is if you're familiar with Full Metal Alchemist, where mm-hmm. it's kind of a, an alt-universe version of Europe. Yeah. Like it's not, there's no, there's no direct equivalence of countries necessarily, but it's like, it's Europe in 1910. Yeah. And that's kind of what the, the world of dark science is moving 
forward is that, you know, it's the 21st century-ish, but everything's a little different. The geography's a little different. Um, uh, there's more to that, obviously, as the story suggests, but mm-hmm. um, that's kind of where Dark Science is going. It's about, it's about her really realizing how big the world is, and it's partly her finding her place in it, and, but more just it's a story about exploration and about... Um, what science is mm-hmm. and what it means, if it means something to different people or if there is one correct interpretation of what what the purpose of science is. Uh, it's a lot headier than Hob. It's obviously a lot longer than Hob. It's already... <laughs> Surpassed I, I'm it. not even halfway through and it's already way longer than Hob. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, and it's got a bigger cast. It's got, you know, and it, it's, it's very much about... It's, it's, it's my first big graphic novel story because I've never done one of these before at, at the scale and this is the first one um, there will be others eventually but mm-hmm. um, Dark Science is very much um, it's very much a, a, an introduction to this world um, and but also it's, it's about uh, yeah, investigating very specific philosophical questions and, uh, I forgot what the question was. I hope that helps. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Uh, well, I mean, kind of going back to the, the world-building aspect, um, did you not tackle it in Hob because you wanted first people to get to know Kim, or did you think you just weren't ready to tackle world-building as a whole at that time? Like, were you too green uh, to uh, webcomics? Okay. It was definitely both. Um, Hob, was, Hob was really short mm-hmm. for that reason, because I'd never really done a long story. And, and yeah, for, those, for similar reasons, I... Um, I need. It's also that for the type of story that Hop was, I needed the world that Kim was in, the setting that Kim was in, to be fairly mundane. Mm-hmm. Um, it would not. It would actually detract from the weirdness of this robot showing up if she lived in a city filled with robots, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, even at the even at the very beginning of Dark Science, you see the town she lives in. It looks it looks a little different than what you saw in Hop. It is essentially the same town, but you know, I've gotten more comfortable designing things and making things a little weirder mm-hmm. um, in the. In the little gap, I should really have a name for that. In the in the in the, the gap of single page stories between Hob and Dark Science, you do see a little bit of establishment of where she lives and, the, and she lives in a new house, you know, and all this stuff. But the city's not. The city has some, some character to it, but it doesn't have. It's not. You wouldn't necessarily think it's a, another universe, you know. Yeah, you you want to make it just you know plausible enough. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, so and it's interesting too because yeah the the costume design uh the the way you've the evolved i guess in terms of your art style is amazing because even with this issue and showing uh, little kim being read a story by her dad um yeah. one of the rare moments of of uh quiet hominess yeah. with her and, and daddy <laughs> yeah it's it's not a thing that happens often no it doesn't um but to just kind of see that aspect and then also when he you know he's telling the story of the nephilim and just that costume design with the mesoamerican um uh motif i guess yeah it's just so gorgeous like how you incorporate yeah, it um it's really fun to do these kind of like quasi dream sequences and um if you've ever seen the movie brazil i have <laughs> um you know the, the it's it's very much inspired by those moments where uh, sam lowry is kind of drifting off and he's this kind of winged like Superman guy in armor flying around because it's mm-hmm. it's a nice it's if you live in an oppressive society if you if you have if, especially if you're telling a story where things are kind of dystopian um, you have uh, it, it's nice to have these little breaks from that um, it's nice for me as an artist just to break from the art tycho and the really strict lines 
costumes and designs and period costumes to just go crazy and go. Uh, the, the the inspiration for the Giant Slayer in that world is kind of um, it's it's kind of Frazetta meets Roger Dean and like Mobius, so it's very like seventies <laughs> sci fi fantasy princess of mars kind of thing well and i think especially um, with a, a world like this where you've kind of established that there there are some rules but you can break them pretty quickly yeah um, um you can yeah. go that fantastic and no one will look sideways at you and go no that no <laughs> there's, there's an important thing in filmmaking um i, I think there may be a term for it but generally you want to establish the, the, the basic rules and tone of your film in the first 10 minutes of a feature film yeah you know if it's comedy you do this if you know if it's sci-fi, that way when you throw, if you introduce things later on, it's not jarring. And I was very conscious about that dark science where the very first thing you see in dark science is Kim powering a machine that it has authors spinning in their graves. Yeah. And when you, I, I, I wanted to make sure, because dark science is meant to be read on its own. Like you, you should, should not have to have read the previous stuff. I, I, I want to make sure it stands alone. Mm-hmm. And um, the, it was important to establish, okay, this is the type of logic we're dealing with. There is science, there is this, this, and this, but it's like Douglas Adams or something like that, where you can you can wiggle. Mm-hmm. And obviously with the, the world that's being introduced in Nephilopolis, that it's a much older world and weirder world that, like, that has some very unusual trappings. So, you know, you think there's constant references to the Old War, whatever that is, and, mm-hmm. you know, this, this, and this, and, and um, it's nice to have these little moments and dream sequences or whatever they might be that kind of harken back to that old, that old kind of crazier time. Yeah. And, and even back in, in Hobb, there was a, the character Alina and yeah. did the, what historical pre reenactment society. Yeah. yeah. The, the historical pre reenactment society where there, there's little goofy things that go on and yeah. you know, it's, it's, you gotta have that, that color. I think when you're telling, especially when you're dealing with, with heavier stuff. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that in some ways Hobb was a lot more grim than um, Dark Sides. Like, Dark Sides yeah. is bigger, mm-hmm. but, um, I, like, Hobb's kind of depressing in a lot of parts, and I think it was really important to have some, uh, I mean, it's about her mom, you know, being dead, and, yeah. you know, all this stuff, and you need those moments of and, You need those moments <laughs> of levity but, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so you need those moments. Um, and, uh, and it's nice to just have, to, to let you know that, you know, the, the world's, there's still some fun out there. Yeah, and it, it definitely was. I mean, I think that I would I would have to go back every once in a while to reread stuff because I sure. mean, well, you, I mean, you're talking about stuff that's very philosophy, you know, heavy, yeah. and uh, and there's also the scientific angles and and everything. And for those who haven't seen your your frequently asked questions, yeah. uh, what did, what did you major in? I never remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was so long ago. Um, I started school. Uh, as a physics major, mm-hmm. did that for two years. Uh, did anthropology for like one year mm-hmm. and or one and a half, and then computer science for I think seven hundred years. And <laughs> then uh, I was a painting major for like three months, and then I dropped out of school. Like I, I have no completed education; I just kind of bopped around. Was it, were these just all subject, subjects that fascinated you, yeah, or did you have an yeah. affinity towards them? I just, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with myself, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't until I was a computer science major that I, I, I made, that's when I started doing Dress and Code, I was in 2005, mm-hmm. and it was just a thing to 
teach myself how to draw, and then I realized how much I liked making comics and just telling stories. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of went from there. And it, like you know, you know, you look back at the earlier stuff; it's very much just kind of comics about subjects I liked. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what brought in a lot of people. Like, oh, he's doing a comic about you know the Dungeons and Discourse, where it's, it's <laughs> look at all the philosophy jokes and this and that. It's um, ridiculous. Like I, I had sent it yeah. to a friend of mine who is a huge like philosophy guy. He's not a major, but he likes it. Uh, and I sent that to him and he was just like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, and it's, I, it's so funny though, because the, the stuff that is easier to share with new people is the stuff I'm so bored with now. Oh, really? <laughs> like, cause I, like, you know, I mean, once I'm done with dark science, uh, you know, in the next 80 years, mm-hmm. uh, like, like you I do. Will, yeah. I, um, I'll probably be like when I was done with Hobbes, I was sick, I was sick of Hobbes when I was finished it. Oh, okay. It just it just took me too long, and I, I it was I was frustrated with because I had gotten so much better as an artist at the time, like because Hob I had to kind of lock in a style, you know, to tell the story, mm-hmm. and I'd been practicing painting and stuff like that, and I really wanted to try some new things, and so I was really happy when Hob was over, just because I got to um, just stretch my legs again and do some different things. Mm-hmm. The second Dungeons and Discourse comic was what happened right after Hob, and it, that was really fun, and I love I love doing those little very short stories. Um, and having fun with it again, but then by the time I was planning Dark Science, I was just like, I don't want to tell it. I don't. I just don't want to tell jokes anymore. And like, there's still there's still humor in mm-hmm. there's still jokes and humor in Dark Science, but it's not a comedy story. You know, it's 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 a fantasy science fiction story, mm-hmm. and that's just that's where my head went. And I think that it was ultimately where I was going to go anyway, because you know, before you can run a marathon, you got to know how to run the 10k. Yeah, you have to, you have to be comfortable doing that. I actually, when I was, before I started Dressing Kodak, I actually had a, this big graphic novel idea that I really wanted to do, uh, like high fantasy, um, like just crazy, very Miyazaki inspired, because that's just kind of what I was into at the time, mm-hmm. um, like everyone was, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the, um, the, and then I, I realized, oh, I can't draw, I'm terrible, I don't know what I, I've never told a story. So I kind of put it on the back burner for years, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, once I get, once I get more comfortable drawing and really, you know, and I'm, I'm glad I had the the wherewithal to kind of to realize that because you know, how many people do you know have a deviant art for ten years where they keep designing and redesigning their characters for this graphic novel they'll one day do? Yeah, um, it's just you know, it's a natural thing, and it's so funny because then when I got confident enough to start to do to do Hob, I went back at that graphic novel story and I was like, "Oh, this is terrible." I'm really glad I didn't do this. Like, I'm glad I got it on my system, but like, I'm like, wow, I, I have much better ideas now. Um, incidentally, though, some of those ideas for the, my first big story were integrated into the historical backdrop for uh, Dark Science. Oh, sweet. So, the, so a lot of the visual elements of the Nephilim and mm-hmm. the Old War and a lot of that stuff, that, that shares a really close aesthetic with... Um, uh, that first story I did. There's, there is a people have asked before. There is a reason why the robots from Hob look a little bit like the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Um, the there is a specific plot reason for that that will come up later. That is, to, and I want to clarify that that does not mean that you need to have read Hob mm-hmm. to to get this in Dark Science. But once you see it in Dark Science, and if you've read Hob, you're like, oh, okay. Like, it's not some big revelation. It's like, okay, that makes sense. There's just a a narrative connection. Yeah, it's just a very, it's just Easter eggs. Oh, okay. It's not anything. 
there's not I'm not telling one big saga. <laughs> Dark Science is very much its own thing. And and it's it is interesting how like, you know, ideas that we develop eventually end up in certain you know, in other stuff. Like Oh yeah, yeah. Like that's a cool idea, but you don't really know what to do with it until like something else happens. You're like, Oh, I could put that here, yeah, there, yeah. in the other place. <laughs> Uh, has that kind of been what um, Dresden Kodak has been for you? Like, it's just, it's been a place of ideas, but those ideas have also evolved? Yeah, well, the, the thing about Dresden Kodak is that it's not about anything in particular. It's just, I mean, originally the idea was that my pen name was just going to be Dresden Kodak, and it was like, my com- these are my comics. Mm-hmm. And I kind of abandoned that, I, that, that moniker, but I... That's still what the site is. It's like, yeah. you know, if I, I've done comics called Caveman Science Fiction, it's not just, it's primarily a comic about Ken Ross now, but it could be a comic about anything. The Caveman yeah. Science Fiction is probably one of my favorite, just like one shot. I think it's, I think it's probably the funniest comic I've done. It's like, me, I'm play God. We go too far. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 um, I got to perform that. I got to read that live. Oh, really? At, um, uh, at a, at a, at a, at a reading in, um, New York one time, and the act right before me was um, uh, Jackson Public from the Venture Brothers. Yeah. Reading. Oh, wow. And he saw my thing, and I just talked to him briefly afterwards. He's like, man, the, the caveman thing was great. I love those voices. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's great. <laughs> did you do a, a different voice for the... Oh, no, I did caveman voices. You yeah. did caveman voices. Like, yeah, it's just it's just like yeah, it's uh I mean it's so silly, but it just it You need that. Yeah. Um I mean w- when you look at, you know, your writing style, I mean, do you consider yourself I mean, I guess a writer or are you just trying to do a story through through pictures, I guess? I don't yeah, you know, um I would say the two forms of of like storytelling or 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 two forms of creativity that I just I I think I I would say that I am proficient at mm-hmm. is I I'm I like direct prose and I like to tell visual stories. Okay. Um, and I've learned that the, the visual stories I like to tell most are comics. I used to work not work I used to make films with a film group for several years before I did um, uh, Dresden Kodak, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where a lot of my a lot of the visual language I use is definitely influenced by film. And I just I like pictures i like telling stories and pictures and they can be jokes um they can be whatever and i think it's contrasted against like um and these are people who are brilliant by the way but like mm-hmm. um like uh like uh dave malky or like zach Wienersmith, um mm-hmm. who are i think some of the best cartoonists go- going right now but they're idea guys you know like they they it's like comics is an easy way to do that and they'll mm-hmm. do it and they'll do a bunch of other stuff too and comics is is one of several outlets, like uh, like Ryan North too, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, the the stuff that they do is amazing, and they're and, and, and I'm not saying their comics are any less good than any other comics, but I just think their motivation is different. Um, and for me, and you know, other the other the other camp, I guess, is that I really am in love with the medium, and I want to see what I can do with it. Um, when you and, and you kind of do that with the um, the different. Uh, structured stories that you have done like where you uh I, I, i'm sorry i don't know the terminology as well but um, i don't either <laughs> good um i guess when you do like more i guess one single page and it just keeps you just keep scrolling down instead of it just it's being an infinite canvas is the term in, that, okay that scott mcleod uses and i like that a lot 
yeah, so, I mean, you've done more of those, and then you kind of switch it up here and there. Like, um, do you just try to go with how you see, I guess, the story in your head, or what the, I guess, what the format kind of allows you to do? It's a little both. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's usually just, um, generally, my, like, my comic process can change from comic to comic, but, like, I never have, like, I never just have an idea for a comic. It's never like, oh, man, this will be a great gag or this will be a great, even a great story. I, I usually have some visuals in mind that I really want mm-hmm. to use. And, and then, and then the, it's kind of a combination. So I guess, I guess it's kind of a, or, or sometimes it's just a, a feeling I want to evoke. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I want this to be lonely. I want to make a lonely comic that has <laughs> these elements in it. And that's where it comes from. And then the, um, it kind of goes from there. And so when I, yeah, when I'm, when I'm, uh, when I'm kind of looking at the format, I just see, when it was a one-shot comic, I just go, I'm going to keep drawing this until the story's done. Mm-hmm. And I'll worry about it later when I have to print it. And then I hate my past self because that's <laughs> the worst. When I was putting together the Tomorrow Girl, the first collection, it took me essentially a year to put that book together mm-hmm. because I had to re-edit a bunch of stuff to make sure it fit in the book. But I regret nothing. Um, <laughs> Never yeah, regret. It's, it's like, I mean, that's what makes my comic my comic, you know? Nobody's doing that. Like, well, I mean... There's better artists and there's better, um, you know, cartoonists out there doing this and that. But I think what may, the way I make mine is fairly unique. It's definitely a, its own style. And I, and I remember when I first came across it, it was like, I think, for, uh, via Stumble Upon. Um, and it's just, it, it to me, it didn't look like anything else that I was, you know, reading online at the time. Um, and, and speaking of the Tomorrow Girl, uh, you were, you were probably responsible for one of the biggest Kickstarter, um, like, uh, fundings, uh, for a while. I mean, it was now, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was the, it ended up being, it still holds the record for being the second most funded comics Kickstarter. Oh, wow. Congratulations. It, yeah. Uh, it was, it, it's the, the top one is Order of the Stick. Oh, yeah. I'm, everybody knows this comic's like me. I don't know how this happened. I've, I'm, like, vaguely aware of it. Um, like, RPGs or something. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but yeah, that raised, like, a million dollars. Like, it was way more than me, but... Um, but yeah, then it was me, and then after that's like, Penny Arcade. Yeah. Um, and to see that, it still kind of freaks me out a little bit, because I think it wasn't until then that I realized, like, the, the, the size of my audience. Mm-hmm. Because web, with webcomics... I've been really drifting away from webcomics as a concept just because I feel like it ends up excluding a lot of people who are putting comics online who wouldn't necessarily fall into that kind of group. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's actually a pretty small subset. Um, and I realize, though, like a lot of times, too, with, with when you think of webcomics, you kind of think of like daily strips and this and that, and, you know, and, and the, the perpetual criticism of my stuff is that it doesn't update very often. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it doesn't. <laughs> and... Um, for I think pretty obvious reasons and I've been told since day one by a lot of professionals web cartoonist people back in the day like this isn't going to work mm-hmm. no one's going to go to your site like you don't you don't have any content and I was just really stubborn and I still am and <laughs> I was just like I want to make this I want to make it this way and I'm not saying I'm a trailblazer or anything I'm really not it's just that I think that neither I nor those people realized that what I was doing could professionally yeah um because Dresden Cutting was not a professional venture for years and it was just like eh, you know just make it and then I think with the Kickstarter I was like oh my goodness <laughs> a lot of people read this and it's hard to tell because 
I don't really have a lot of traffic on my site, you know, because it doesn't update very often. So it's really hard to gauge how many readers you have or how many people are really into the comic. And, you know, there's obviously it was enough to make a living because I've been making a living before the Kickstarter. But mm-hmm. the Kickstarter is like, oh, wow, this is like one of the biggest web comics. I had no idea. And there's other I've had other confirmations of that later on. Um, and I just it, it was very, very surprising. Well, and it's, yeah. it is interesting just, you know, from what you said about the, the web comics as a, as a form of, um, to, to make a living basically, uh, because yeah, you know, like the cartoonists were probably thinking and it's like, it's the web. I mean, we're, we're used to this like instant access and yeah. if someone says they're going to update on this day, they better damn well update on that day. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, for you to kind of like stick to your guns on that and, and just be like, well, look, I'm going to update just not all the time and uh, kind of speaks to the audience as well that we're like, okay, well, whenever, you know, when you do, you do. I I really like to emphasize though, that it would be, I would only benefit from more content and more regular content. (laughs) And and it's something this, this year in particular, I've made steps to kind of have a regular schedule. Um, Part of that was just hiring an assistant to help with a lot of logistical things. And that's Mm -hmm. been a, a huge help. But I mean, I've been updating faster than I have since 2010 <laughs> um, recently, and it is it, a lot of it just has to do with having getting help to do all of the non-comic stuff. But well, there, there's I, also I this... want to have regular updates, but mm-hmm. those regular updates are going to be at once every two weeks. So. Yeah. Well, I think there's always that stress. I mean, no matter what you do, if you're if you're trying to like use the 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 inter, interwebs as yeah. kind of a, a form of access to people, there's always going to be that pressure to provide content because we are so concerned with like, oh, if I lose this many followers, if I lose this many people on Facebook or whatever, yeah. uh, it's like, it's over. Like, my life has ended and no one's paying attention to me anymore. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of maddening. The internet, even when, even when everything is ostensibly constructive, the internet can just be a miserable place to be. Yeah. Because, because we, we, you know, you, you build, especially with social media, you know, it, it really conditions you to look for if not approval, just recognition constantly. Mm-hmm. And that's not a normal way for human being to act. And, you know, I've been <laughs> taking, I've been taking longer internet sabbaticals while I've been working recently and it's really helped, but you can't, you can't leave it entirely. It's, you know, it's your job and also it's how the modern world works. Yeah. Um, and I don't dislike it, but I think that, you know, I've been taking it in moderation more recently and it's a lot nicer. Yeah, I think it's always good to take those like uh, those little breaks and just be like, okay, I'm not gonna look at Twitter for like yeah. the next you know five hours or something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Start small and then build up to a day or two. <laughs> yeah, and you realize, oh wow, I, there was nothing of value that I was looking at. I, I was just I was just going through motions. Like, oh, I'm refreshing things from people I barely know. Mm-hmm. Like ah, you know, take a break. And do you ever find, like, uh, when you're on Twitter, that are you looking for people who are more that you feel are your audience or who will pay attention to you, or are you trying to court new people, I guess? Um, I'm really bad about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, I, I think that, I think that primarily my Twitter is to let people know that I'm a real human. Oh. Um, it's not marketing. It's, well, here's the thing, like, when... I am, I hate to use the term internet famous. I don't know. I, I don't know what that means, but I, I'm definitely <laughs> someone who's, who's well known in many circles of the internet, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true of anyone. People run blogs, people do this and that. A lot of people make comics online too. Mm-hmm. And people t- tend to see you as an abstraction a lot of times and don't really realize there's a person behind it. And 
that that changes the dynamic of how you interact with them so much. So, like, if you don't have that presence, uh, a lot of times people just don't support you because they don't really intuitively realize that you're a real person. So when I started on Twitter, I started back in, like, 2008, I started getting way more PayPal donations. Hmm. Because, like, oh, yeah, hey, you're, oh, yeah, that's a guy who makes that. You're a real human being. Yeah, and it's not, and I'm not, I'm not saying that people are actively dehumanizing anyone, but it's just something we don't think about. How many times you go to a site, you're like, you don't know if it's 20 people working on something. True. And or if a company does it, and I just like, I just like to be kind of real on Twitter. Like I just like this is me. This is my just my personal account. Mm-hmm. I'm not really. I mean, I, I will I will still promote my work and I talk about what I do because that's my life. Mm-hmm. But I'm not there to court anyone necessarily. I, I don't think I'd be good at it. Um, <laughs> and it's you know, and also too like immediate feedback for typos oh yeah <laughs> that's pretty much yeah and i mean like and I've, I've definitely like made friends this way and i've definitely like i've definitely grown, grown my audience doing it um but the, i feel like those are all side effects mm-hmm. it's just kind of happened because you were happened, just doing yeah. your thing and uh i mean because yeah with with twitter like what i've noticed because i follow you on twitter and uh always uh like like to to watch the um Sometimes the debates, I guess, that go on about uh, definitely Lord of the Rings, because um, <laughs> you know, I mean you're very vocal about that. You're very well versed in the world of Tolkien. Oh yeah. Um, it, I mean, do you read it often, or is it just that uh, something that you? It's just always kind of been in your head, and you're just like, oh my I god. Grew up with it. Mm-hmm. So um, I have no. I was not raised with any um, religious religion or religious beliefs, mm-hmm. and uh, but. The equivalent in my family's household was Tolkien. Oh, nice. Um, I was not read Bible stories. I was read excerpts from Return of the King. Like, that. that is that is my... my, my I do not remember the first time I heard the story, because it was only read to me by my father. Mm-hmm. And it's just always been... It's just real to me. Yeah. Um, and I kind of got into it again as an adult when the movies were coming out and mm-hmm. I was like I'm really gonna like go back and like see if I really enjoy because you know a lot of times you like stuff as a kid it turns out to kind of stink and I realized <laughs> how much I really enjoyed them because they're my favorite pieces of media are, are ones that are like uh, they're weirdly flawed or incomplete mm-hmm. and Tolkien is perfect because the guy's really not like a great writer no <laughs> but, he, but he's a but he's a a shockingly competent writer because his imagination is so powerful mm-hmm. and he is a, like a ruthlessly intelligent person and you can see that in the work even if it's not the most expertly executed thing now i, I should clarify that i think that lord of the rings is, is as a whole pretty damn good mm-hmm. as far as literature goes um especially compared to like um so i'm just not a fan of c.s lewis i know they, they often get lumped together and i, I, yeah. I think that Tolkien's a much better storyteller, but, you know, he's not, like, a brilliant, like, it's just not, it's not, not his job, you know, he's just mm-hmm. academic, yeah. and, but, like, The Hobbit is clunky, Silmarillion is not even his own real work, it's kind of stitched together, but it doesn't matter, you know, like, it, <laughs> it just, it, it's clearly something that really strikes a chord with so many people, and, and understanding why it strikes a chord with people, and understanding how one can achieve that effect is fascinating to me because I mean I, I would love to have that effect on me you know I'd love to have something where people like they want to just dive into my world mm-hmm. um, and I, I with talking especially these days with the 
Hobbit movies coming out have been a little more vocal because I'm real. I realize more and more how um, unimaginative people are with adaptations of his work because I don't think they. I, I think that it's been filtered through too much other pop culture. I think you've probably seen. I've complained online <laughs> before about Peter Jackson a lot, which is weird because I, I defend him but also rip about him because <laughs> I, I like I, I like those movies a lot, mm-hmm. but. I think it's tragic that Peter Jackson was really just kind of adapting, um, like Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> mm-hmm. rather than Lord of the Rings. And it's because the, it's not his fault exactly, but it's just like, those are the images we have. Like it's, it's a copy of a copy of a copy. And you know, it's why I did the Cimmerillion project is, is to kind of remind people that before the movies came out, visual interpretations or just literary interpretations of Tolkien were all over the place. It was mm-hmm. awesome. Like, uh, I don't want to be a, a, a fantasy hipster, but the '90s <laughs> were crazy about um, different adaptations of, of uh, different visual adaptations and interpretations of Tolkien. It was really cool, mm-hmm. and I miss that. And that's when I did the Cimmerillion project. It was it, it, well, and I still do it. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, okay, let's look at the descriptions. Let's look at why he made these choices, and, and go from there. And it's just, you know, it's just a different take. No, and and as someone who I, I think has the uh, an opposite of you know point of view because I was much more into C.S. Lewis than I was Tolkien. Yeah. Um, and I, I I attempted as an adult to read Tolkien. And it was just like ah, oh, this is too dry. I can't I can't make it. Um, yeah, I, I I wonder if it's a temperament thing because um, it's funny. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are in your in your camp like, and I don't. I I, I really do think though that. C.S. Lewis and um, Tolkien in particular kind of represent two opposite ends of the fantasy spectrum. Very true. Uh, as far as disposition and like what they're going for. Mm-hmm. And I think that you kind of just, not that to say that there are people who like both, but I think that it's kind of a weird litmus test of what you're looking for. Because that's the thing, is like, I love Tolkien. I don't really like a lot of other fantasy at all. Like, I just can never get into it. Like, mm-hmm. um, I read the first... 10 pages of Game of Thrones. I was like, okay, this is, I get it, but I'm not going to read this. But you need to read about all the food that they're eating. Yeah. It's, like, it's important. It's weird. It's because I know he's compared to Tolkien in specific ways. And I kind of get that, but it's just like, this does not have the same effect on me at all. Mm-hmm. I don't care um, <laughs> at all. Like again, and I'm not, I, I don't want that to be a judgment call. It's just, it's just, it's clearly not for me. Well, and, um, and I think that's another thing that we, we, we sometimes take for granted is that our opinions are our opinions. And it's like, so it's, those are just taste. Yeah. yeah. People don't understand that. Like, I think social media has made people kind of, kind of bonkers about that. Oh, it's everyone, so ridiculous. Thinks they need a really specific reason. It's like, oh, I didn't enjoy this. Well, let me write an essay about it. Like, yeah. they didn't like it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There, there are definitely like movies that I've, I've not cared for. And I was like, well, should I write a thing about it? No, I don't really want to. It's like, I just didn't care for it and I don't want to spend the time and effort to explain why when it's just a simple no I did not care for it yeah it's I I hated Captain America the Winter Soldier so much really that I turned it off not even 30 minutes in wow it bothered me so much I was I was I was like upset watching and my girlfriend was too and we were trying to figure we figured it out eventually and it was just that I realized that because you know obviously it's a very different film from the first one stylistically Mm -hmm. and it was just that, oh, this is kind of really hearkening to, mo- like, modern thriller elements of filmmaking. And yeah. it's a genre that I just really, it kind of turns my brain off. Mm-hmm. And, like, like the James Bond, Born Identity, all the spy stuff. And I hate that stuff. <laughs> and, and it's, and again, nothing against it. It's just, I cannot get into it. It's just not yours. Yeah. No, and, and it's like, and it's, like, I 
going to say that's a badly made film. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people who might have the same reaction as me would try to make that argument and not understand that it is just a matter of taste. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I agree with you on the the Lord of the Rings you know, with the, with the Hobbit movies, especially because the with the Lord of the Rings, like I. You know, I bought the extended edition and, oh, yeah. you know, watched those and and everything. And, and even with the commentaries and the behind-the-scenes yeah. stuff. Uh, but The Hobbit, like, I was okay with the first two movies. And, like, you yeah. know, they have to fill in some gaps here, sure, you know. Yeah. Especially if you're kind of, like, mandated by the company to make yeah. three movies. I, I wrote a big defense of the first film. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like explaining, like, what why they made the decisions they did. I would still defend those decisions, but... But yeah, the third you know, movie really yeah. is. It's just it, it, the the way I see it. Like if you look at the Avengers, it's the last twenty minutes are all climax and payoff for four to five years worth of movies. Yeah. So it's going to be a lot of like smashy, smashy. Oh my god, that shot was so cool! Did you see right. that? Whereas the Hobbit doesn't have that kind of clout, no matter what. And yeah, it's it's. It just fails yeah. to keep your interest because you're like, is it over yet? I mean, the dragon's gone already. It's just yeah, it's it's complicated because a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but The Hobbit's not a very good book. <laughs> um, and I'm saying this as the as a diehard Tolkien fan. Yeah, it is not comparable at all to anything else he wrote. Mm-hmm. The little story he wrote, and again, I think it's a really cute story, and I think it's a very good children's story, and I think kids should definitely read it because yeah. it's great. But it's not. It's a fairy tale. It is not. It is. It is not actually a Tolkien book in the in the same way. When he wrote The Hobbit, he actually was kind of on the fence of whether he wanted to include it in his his Middle Earth Silmarillion world that he'd been working on. Okay. It was actually up in the air. Uh, the Necromancer of Dol Guldur was just kind of meant to be kind of a hint at, oh, maybe if you know, maybe look how this world is crazier than you think it is. Mm-hmm. And it was only when he started putting together Lord of the Rings, he's like, okay, The Hobbit is is these are connected um and then he realized how much he had to retcon immediately because the hobbit's a fairy tale like bard the bowman in the book he he's introduced while he's killing smog <laughs> like it's like smog's burning down the, the the town and it's like oh and some guy sees smog and shoots him and he dies and then, that, and then he's killed <laughs> that's what happens because it's a fairy tale it's mm-hmm. not lord of the rings lord of the rings is this kind of it's very low mana it's very detailed it's very realistic like trudging through the snow oh man what's going on with this the politics of this place like mm-hmm. uh, you know that's what lord of the rings is the, the hobbit is nothing like that on purpose and to, uh, i've written about this a little bit before but tolkien obviously recognized this and when he was doing when he, after lord of the rings was finished or around the time he was finishing it he was like oh i should really go back and rewrite the hobbit to oh, make it yeah. fit into this because the hobbit he even the first edition of the hobbit has Gollum giving Bilbo the ring because he won the contest to give you an idea of how different it was. So none of those intricacies of plot. Yeah, no, because it, it was just a magic ring. Mm-hmm. There was nothing to it. And it's and also there was no actual physical description of Gollum. In the, and so in very early rend, uh, visual renditions of The Hobbit, Gollum's gigantic. He's like a big monster. Um, and these are, he wasn't a, there was no planning. Um, and the uh, so yeah when he was when he was putting together um, Lord of the Rings uh, around the time he did the Quest of Erebor which is kind of the the real version of the Hobbit story and so the retcon was that the Hobbit is kind of this nonsense exaggeration that Bilbo told Gandalf oh. and 
that there's there's hints of it in the movie at the very the very first film like Gandalf mentions like oh stories need to be exaggerated maybe this didn't happen this way mm. and but that's kind of they just kind of leave it at that and so because the, the thing is if you take it if you were to take it as a literal story uh, literal events mm-hmm. the Hobbit is not that important compared to Lord of the Rings it can't be because yeah. it's just this one thing that happens and so but so when you take it Tolkien realized when you take it out of the fairy tale capacity it's very anticlimactic yeah and so and then he stopped he did he stopped he stopped rewriting and he stopped adapting it and i think um it's in like one of like unfinished tales one of those other books that collect his, his writings there's a little excerpt it's basically just a meeting of gandalf and thorin explaining why gandalf wants the dwarves to go on this mission because in the book the hobbit that none of that's there none of that's in, <laughs> everything like 90 percent of those movies is, is not in the book oh good um, and it's 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 it pulls from other things like the white council and uh like gandalf and galadriel and saruman investigating the necromancer that's in like the return of the king and, and stuff and i appreciated like those little the, i like those additions the, the other stuff to be honest i oh, was yeah. like you know what they should have not adapted the hobbit and just done an actual prequel oh yeah like, that would have been amazing <laughs> pull, pull from the books you have plenty to work with just have gandalf and radagast Solid mysteries. It's CSI, um, you know, Middle yeah, Earth. Because Gandalf, he got into some crazy stuff. You know, he he. There, there's a lot of really cool stories in in that Tolkien wrote about. Like, even you could have an entire story based on what the Witch King of Angmar was doing. <laughs> like, just wrecking faces and, and conquering the North and like the Dunedain and like Aragorn's ancestors fighting. You know, frost trolls and. There's, there's so much cool stuff you could have done. And I feel like, they're like, The Hobbit, we'll do The Hobbit. I'm like, dude, just, you know, there's the Rankin-Bass cartoon from the 70s. Yeah. That's the best adaptation you're ever going to get. That's the... it's 40 minutes, <laughs> it's cute, um, and that's it, you know? And and the, and, and the, I, I, I feel like The Hobbit movies are a noble failure. If that, I, like, I still appreciate them in a way, but they are not... I can't recommend them to people, you know. Like I just feel like they got out of hand. Yeah, there. When when it was originally just going to be two movies, I was all I was all on board with that because you could definitely see within the three movies that they put out where the cuts could have been and and everything. It's tough too, though, because like nobody has an arc in that book. Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like I think that's why people complain so much about Thorin in the last movie. Is like they're doing their best. But the thing is, in the books, Thorin's a dick. <laughs> he's just a dick who who, re- who repents on his deathbed. Yeah. He's like, oh, sorry I was so mean to you. I really see what you meant now, Bilbo. Yeah, and Bilbo's and like, it wasn't, sure. It wasn't even about the, their whole journey. It was just about Bilbo stealing that stone. It wasn't anything. It's, again, it's a fairy tale. Yeah. Like, and, and, and the dwarves, most of the dwarves in the book don't even have lines. Like, Bob, there's some jokes about Bobber being fat because... That people are hilarious, I guess. It's pretty Even dumb. in Tolkien's time. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, like, that's what you're working with. This is, like, for little kids. And it's, yeah, and so you give, like, these guys, they're doing their best to inject a bunch of depth, mm-hmm. but that's, I feel like that's a real, that's a losing battle. Yeah, the I mean, I, I appreciated what they were trying to do. I mean, even the, the love story between, uh, was it Killy? Dwarf attrition. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah the, I was actually not bothered by that. I was bothered by other stuff. Yeah, no, I, I didn't... For me, yeah. It wasn't great, but I get it. 
Yeah, it wasn't a terrible thing to do. It didn't destroy everything Tolkien worked for. It put another woman into the story, thank God. <laughs> Honestly, you could have, if you would have cut out the 45 minutes of Thorin thinking about gold <laughs> and, and, and gave it to Toriel talking to Thranduil about what elves are up to, mm-hmm. it would be amazing. Oh because God, yeah. I thought she was really good. I thought the, yeah, like you're saying, like some of the expansions on the story worked really well because they're pulling from stuff in the books. Mm-hmm. So like the isolationist attitude of the elves and, and, and Mirkwood, that's legit. Like that was a real thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it would have been awesome if Legolas wasn't in it because he really distracts from it because he has nothing to do. He has no, he has no story to tell in this, in the Hobbit. Yeah. But Toriel's, you can, you can create her with that purpose. And, uh, from a book nerd standpoint, I liked, I, the thing I appreciated, I didn't like that it was a romance exactly, but I, her friendship with Keeley was cool because it's what they forgot to do with Gimli and Legolas mm-hmm. in the movies because they do have a friendship in the movies, but it's very simplistic. Yeah. Um, and they're action figures basically in the, in the movies. And again, I, I like those movies, but it was, it was nice of them to kind of go back and be like, okay, why did dwarves and elves not like each other? What's the deal? Like, what, hmm. what, you know, and it's nice to, it was nice of them to investigate that. Yeah, and I mean, they are what they are. The I mean, the sure. Lord of the Rings is is always going to be, I think, the superior trilogy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Hobbits. They're like, okay, kids. It's kind of like the the prequels to Star Wars. <laughs> You're like, yeah. I guess yeah. you have no, to watch like, that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. Um, oh, that's that might be going too far. That's, that's really harsh. <laughs> but I, I know what you mean. Um, the the like, sentimentality is there, where it's like, okay, it's not as good as the other trilogy, but. You have to watch it anyway to get maybe some kind of a story out of it. Yeah, I think that I think that it's I think the way that they're similar is that you can tell that, like Lucas in the prequels, you can tell that Peter Jackson is just not that into it this time around mm-hmm. as much. Yeah. You know, he didn't even want to direct these originally. He, yeah, it was going to be what Guillermo del Toro. That would have been cool. That would have um, been amazing. And uh, like, yeah, and so you know, like, like with the Star Wars prequels, you know, Lucas, it's a cash grab. Mm-hmm. He's like he did. He never, and, and you know, and I've ranted for ages about this, but <laughs> the idea that George Lucas created Star Wars is, is a weird historical myth, and one that not even he really believes. And it's like you know, he's a producer of an amazing trilogy, but everyone acts like he's Tolkien, where he had this whole world in his head. That's not how movies work. That's how books work. Yeah. But and so yeah, if you gave the reins to like one tenth of the creative force behind Star Wars, you're going to get the Star Wars prequels. You know, <laughs> like he doesn't know, you know, he didn't even, you know, Ralph McQuarrie created Darth Vader, you know, mm-hmm. because he's like, we have a guy in a samurai helmet. Well, he needs a gas mask. Well, he needs a laser sword. Well, and you know, it's movie decisions. <laughs> and Lucas acts like, oh yeah, I had this big plan for Anakin. I'm like, you didn't even know what his name was. <laughs> Darth Vader wasn't even Luke's father until Empire. It yeah. Wasn't, it wasn't meant to be a thing. Well, and, and you can I, tell with the backtracking. This. I mean, it's like yeah. when the reveal is that they're brother and sister, you're like, eh, what? Yeah, that was that, yeah. <laughs> I, boy, do I hate prequels. <laughs> is, is there a good prequel? I, is there a good prequel that was made, like that was written after the original whatever story? I is there a good don't prequel? know. I, I feel like that's actually been posed before and no one could yeah. come up with an adequate answer to that. I just don't think there, I, I can't, I can't think, unless, unless it's something like, it's in the same setting, but they're just unrelated. Like, like, I, you know, because I, I, I have my Star Wars project that I want to do for a while, where, but it took place three hundred years mm-hmm. before, and I think that's then it's not really a prequel. Yeah, know? then it's, it's just you're not, history. You're not making the story up. 
Yeah, and when and when you do that, yeah, it's it's more like I'm just filling out this world to a certain extent. It's it has no bearing on any plot that's coming up. And the, the clomping the clomping foot of nerdism <laughs> is a is a term. I forgot who coined that. I love it, but it is it is that it's that the bad part of nerd, it, which is filling in everything. Mm-hmm. It's Star Trek extended fiction. You know, like oh man, we're gonna go into the intricacies of the politics of this world. It's like, dude, this show was made. So you could have a planet where people were black on one side and white on the other side of their face. Yeah. Like, that's Star Trek. And if you go too far, you forget what it's about. Yeah, it's, and, it's and, like and, the, the whole Prime Directive thing. It's like, you know how many times Kirk, you yeah. know, broke the Prime Directive? And, I, and I, I think Star Trek's great, but I think, you know, the whole, but it's everything. Like, extended universe of Star Wars, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff is really cool, but... And I think it's, I think Star Wars is a little more forgivable because it is just kind of a whatever universe you can do whatever you want. Yeah. But like, if you're like, how does the Millennium Falcon work? It doesn't matter. It mm-hmm. never mattered. Magic in the dreams of everyone present. Yeah. <laughs> it's. And I think that's why people. Um, I think a lot of writers now don't understand what world building means because world building is not literally the details of the, of your setting. That's not. That's just nerd stuff. Mm-hmm. The world building is what's. The, the, it's kind of an agreement between the author and the and the audience, mm-hmm. and it's like these are the rules of what of the story you're going to engage in, and this is this is it's, it's an unconscious agreement. It's like when you do a world building to me is like if you go to see a magician, mm-hmm. you know the magician is not actually magic, yeah. But the agree the unconscious agreement is that I you don't know how he's doing it, and it's a suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. So like the job a good magician is going to make you like really question well how do, how do they do that and that's what world building is it's like okay well i have a comedy well the world building of the comedy is you have to condition people to be ready for to laugh at things or you have to condition them for a setting that in brazil obviously is a great film like that the world building of brazil no one knows how the subway system in brazil works no one cares <laughs> it doesn't matter it's a means to an end mm-hmm. you know your your world building is is a is a tool to get an, a desired effect yeah, I, I think that yeah. the, the details are fun on, on the level of like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but mm-hmm. the minute you make it canon is is the minute yeah. you kind of destroy something a little bit. Like, yeah, it's why, I'm, why I'm always really hesitant to share um, information about my world that I, that I create mm-hmm. outside of the context of the story, because I don't think it's meaningful. Yeah. Because people are like, oh, hey, what is... Uh, Who's the what, what? How does the Department of Opposition work? Like, what you know? Is it like a? Is it like one guy or like? It's like well, and I always I always kind of answer like a quasi in universe. Like, well, it hasn't. No one has mentioned it yet <laughs> because, and I'm not trying to be hoity-toity about it. It's just like nothing I'm going to give you will really be satisfying. Yeah. Because it if it isn't in the story, it doesn't matter. And this is different if you're making a video game or if you're making like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign because then you need a bunch of contingencies because mm-hmm. you don't know how the if it's interactive it's different because you don't know how the player is going to engage in your world yeah so world building is different but as a storyteller world building is a means to an end I really do believe that well, and and I believe you too just because uh, I mean there have been certain movies or even television shows that I can't <laughs> I can't stand because they don't follow their own rules like yeah. um, uh, I don't really care for Looper uh, I never saw it um, yes, I, there's a thing about time travel uh, in it's movies. Tough. It's tough to write. It, it very much is, and I applaud anyone who tries to, but everyone was, like, lauding Looper, like, oh my god, it's the best time travel movie ever, and when I saw it, I was like, 
No, it's not, because he basically gives up on his rules by trying to explain it away with, don't bother talking about it or thinking about it, because it doesn't matter. It's like, <laughs> well, there you go. that's, Jeez. no, you can't just establish time travel, <laughs> intricate rules as to how this works, and then say that, how is this happening, doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Um, that bothers me. <laughs> yeah, you, you, that's the thing, it's like what I was saying earlier, like, first 10 minutes you have to establish what the rules are Mm -hmm. um you can bend those rules obviously but if you if you go outside that that's when the conclusion of a a story is dissatisfying that's when you have deus ex machina you know yeah um if if it's you know there's a lot lots of literary devices like Chekhov's gun you know if you introduce something that's that seems very relevant in the first act that needs to come up again Mm -hmm. um it's really basic rules of storytelling and it's basic rules of world building too um don't contradict yourself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Pay if attention. If, don't contradict yourself if it's, if it's something important. If it's little minutiae, that's going to happen. Because yeah. Because there's no such thing as a, as a plot that doesn't have any plot holes. It's going to happen because it's not real. <laughs> a, if you keep investigating the setting of something, it's not going to be um, something you're going to find some hole because it's not literally a pocket universe that someone created. <laughs> There's always going to be one person that's going to find some kind of issue or whatever. So it's just like try to uh, try to make the best story you possibly can. Stick to your rules to a degree and, and enjoy yourself, basically. Yeah, and and um, and if you need to if you need to retcon something or change something, there's smart ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's don't. It's always good to at least pay lip service to that and not just be like, oh, don't worry about that. Now it's this now. Yes, yeah. people will get annoyed. It's, um, it's it kind of it's like um, Avatar: The Last Airbender when they did the yeah. Ember Island players. Yeah, uh, that was like probably one of the most clever devices oh, of yeah. recapping and then also pointing out some of their own story flaws. Yeah, like uh, like um, it's like did Jet die? I don't know. It was really unclear. Yeah, it was never Sorry about that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they tried to do it with Korra and it didn't quite yeah. work out the same way. But uh, you know. Um, and, and yeah, cause, uh, other than the Lord of the Rings and everything, you're, you're very passionate about dinosaurs. I... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. I uh, dinosaurs. the last couple of times I've seen you at cons, you're very big on drawing dinosaurs and, yeah. uh, in, in, uh, sketchbooks and everything. Um, yeah. so how do you feel about the next Jurassic Park that's coming out? Uh, I just don't care. No, oh, no. Here's the thing. Here, yeah, this is, this is, this is my take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back between apathy and frustration. Oh. Because I, I Jurassic Park is one of the coolest movies. It really is. Outside of being a fan of dinosaurs, that movie's great. Mm-hmm. That is one of Steven Spielberg's best movies. I think it's better than Jaws. It it holds and, up so well. Yeah, and it's because it's just really well made, and they're really good characters. Mm-hmm. And because that's you know, it's it's something that's often missed with like monster movies because it is a monster movie. Yeah. Um, you got like what makes a monster movie oftentimes really memorable is you. Engaging, you have to really like the people because you, you want them to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't, if you're not really invested in what they're doing, everything else doesn't really matter. And but and you know and the, the, de- the decreasing quality of of um, the decreasing quality of each sequel is to be expected. But I think the Jurassic Park is really a victim of its own success because it became a brand of monster films rather than, rather than the original idea, which was. Look how exciting this is! These are like up-to-date modern dinosaurs because I think younger people now aren't really going to appreciate what that really meant for people growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, because I was I was ten. Yeah, I was like ten when I came 
know, that is the ultimate age to watch Jurassic Park. And, like, I had my dinosaur toys, and I knew about dinosaurs a lot, even as a kid, and I was so pumped when they mentioned that dinosaurs were warm-blooded in the movie, because that was not a thing that people knew in pop culture. You know, like, people thought dinosaurs lived in swamps, like, in the the public eye, you Mm -hmm. know, it was not a thing. So you had these really dynamic, really, like, I mean, there's a lot of like scientific errors in that movie but <laughs> yeah. for the time it like all the things that they brought in overshadowed it like you had these dinosaurs running around and being like understanding the relationship to birds this stuff was groundbreaking mm-hmm. for pop culture like it's really hard to explain i feel like it's probably how people i feel like me explaining uh jurassic park to people who are too young to have seen it is like when it came out, it's kind of like somebody trying to explain Star Wars when it came out. Like, oh, yeah, you yeah. don't understand. Nothing was like this. <laughs> and Jurassic Park didn't have that big of a pop culture impact compared to Star Wars. But for dinosaur enthusiasts, it was our Star Wars. And it's, I, I guess that with the new one, no one is going to be, you can't make everyone happy with it. Mm-hmm. And the, they could go two ways with with a is it a reboot? I don't even know. It's just a sequel. No, it's I a continuation. So okay. I don't think Let's they have sure. any of the uh, the same characters, but it is like it's Hammond. Yeah, it's got Star Lord and yeah, <laughs> Star Lord and the Lady in the and, Water. Yeah, uh. and so it's um, so yeah, so so the new one you either do one of two things. If you want to make another Jurassic Park film, you bank on the name mm-hmm. and you redo it and you make it up to date and you and you try to kind of re not recreate, but you try to look at the things that made it successful the first time around mm-hmm. and and do that because it worked and not the not the plot or anything but just the concepts like what sold the original Jurassic Park was new dinosaurs really realistic dinosaurs yeah and this but in the other way is you go deep nostalgia and you just you look at the brand the visual brand mm-hmm. which is these scaly velociraptors monster movie elements and that sort of thing and I think that both, from a business standpoint, are completely legitimate strategies. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred the former um, because I think that that has a lot more longevity. Because you know, by Jurassic Park three, nobody cared anymore. You know, like you're like, okay, whatever, pterodactyls, sure. And I think that um, I think that doing a full on reboot with new dinosaurs would have been riskier. To, to the producers conceptually, mm-hmm. but in the box office, I actually think that it would be less risky because I think they don't realize that I've talked to kids about the Jurassic World movie and mm-hmm. they're actually confused because they don't look like dinosaurs to them. Mm-hmm. Because Jurassic Park is no longer a st- no longer the only thing dictating what kids see about dinosaurs. It actually isn't at all. Mm-hmm. There's lots of other things. Walking with Dinosaurs came out 15 years ago or 16 years ago. Oh my. Um, <laughs> And Walking with Dinosaurs is more up to date than Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And there's an entire generation of people who are like teenagers or older who their image of what dinosaurs are in pop culture is not Jurassic Park. I mean, Jurassic Park's still a huge zeitgeist thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the kids watch Dinosaur Train. You know, <laughs> they watch the Discovery Channel stuff. Um, kids who love dinosaurs. The, the, the 2015 equivalent of me, 10-year-old me, mm-hmm is not going to be that interested in Jurassic World, I'll tell you. Yeah. And it's, and I think that's what they missed out on. Like, it'll probably be fine, like, adventure movie, but, like, I like movies about 
I want to dress for my dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And they're not dinosaurs anymore. They're yeah, monsters. It's, it is interesting, yeah, because this generation knows, like, firsthand that uh, raptors had feathers. Yeah, you grew up with that. Yeah, they're, that's that's not disputable anymore. It's like, yeah. no, that's the science now, because, yeah, I, I mean, I was 10 as well when, uh-huh. when Jurassic Park came out uh, in the theaters, and I still remember, you know, burying my head in my dad's lap because I was so freaking scared. Oh, it's terrifying. Oh, it's just, the, I mean, the, the roar of the T-Rex, I mean, the, the sound for what it was, it was just, it's it, you're all, it's all over you, I mean... Um, it's unreal. It's just not a relentless movie. Um, and so, but you, you cared about the characters. You, you, you wanted like Alan and, and Ellie and everything to survive the kids, you know, Ian and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, then when the second and the third one comes out, you're like, I like these characters, but they're not acting like the characters that I like. Um, and they're doing weird stuff. I don't, I don't get it. Um, I, I've actually like, since the, the new trailer came out, uh, I've been more interested in Jurassic World, just because it feels like it's at least trying to kind of take, I guess, the more philosophical um, route of the first one, where it's, what does science do, and, like, how, you know, how arrogant are we to create a new dinosaur, basically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And and that's the thing, is, like, I mean, I I don't want to, I don't want to, like, dismiss it out of hand, because I feel like there's much more of an original idea here than with the sequels. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... And I think that from that from that point of view, it could end up being great. Yeah. Um, it could be like, oh, you know, like it's it's the Disney World model of science, <laughs> and that is not a conversation that's gotten old. And I think it's that that's good if they're doing that. Um, it's just that as someone who's into dinosaurs, mm-hmm. eh, I just don't care. I don't, <laughs> care about, I don't care about mutant dinosaurs. I don't really care about the guy riding a motorcycle with a pack of scaly raptors like it's just like this isn't for me anymore uh what you've probably answered this before but what 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 is your favorite dinosaur it changes sometimes all-time deinonychus Mm -hmm. because i was a big fan of dino riders in the 80s (laughs) best show ever um i was always uh i was always into denver the last dinosaur but very different show very different show (laughs) dino riders is great because well that dino riders too like they they that was pretty up-to-date dinosaurs for the time. Like it was like 87, 88, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, Deinonychus. I, I, I would say that my gen- I have a, the most interest in the Manoraptor and dinosaurs. All the Deinonychosaurus, like Troodon and uh, Velociraptor, Deinonychus, and all those guys. And, um, uh, like T-Rex and Tyrannosaurus are super all the coelurosaurs all the all the first dinosaurs that they realized were fluffy those are all really cool they're some of my favorites um because there's some newer ones that are neat like therizinosaurs are really cool because they're just big pot belly giant sloths basically um uh, tyrannosaurs i think are i think that a lot of times i think people are are afraid to say tyrannosaurus is their favorite dinosaur Mm -hmm. without realizing like how completely fascinating Tyrannosaurus rex as a species like that that is one of the most unique and like engaging creatures ever to exist uh and not for like even like the obvious things like it's a big cool predator there's just a lot of things about the dinosaurs that are very neat like um very big brain for its size mm-hmm. uh weirdly good sense of smell um it's also like incredibly prolific um in what in, way in the fossil record like it's just they took over um 
and there's some suggestion that they were so successful compared to other large predators that they're the like young tyrannosaurs outcompeted mid-level predators for their niche and then grew up and took over the top level thing. So you had a single species dominating multiple ecological niches. Wow. Um, they're just really good at what they did. Um, and they're, you know, this, they're, they're also one of the more studied animals because there's a lot of them, mm-hmm. a lot of fossils and yeah, they're just really, and, and they're actually evolved from very small dinosaurs from, from the Jurassic. They're not, they're only very distantly related to like Allosaurus or something like that. They took over oh, wow. in, the, in the Cretaceous. Yeah. Um, they're more, they're much more closely related to, uh, Velociraptor than they are Allosaurus or uh, any of those dinosaurs. Oh, that's, uh, no, I, cause I remember when, when Jurassic Park came out, like that's, I, I went through phases of different things I was into yeah. and like, I, I'm fairly certain that that movie made tons of, uh, fans of dinosaurs out of kids. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I remember going through that, uh, that phase of my life where like, oh my God, I just want dinosaurs all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, do you feel like you've you've ever gone out of that with with anything, or uh, I mean, especially with dinosaurs, like something you've been so passionate about, and then you're oh, like, ah, yeah. oh, it's gone. <laughs> I go through phases. Um, I I mean, I've always kept an eye on dinosaur stuff, but like I've definitely gone in and out over the years. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's only natural. Um, it it definitely peaked like two years ago because mm-hmm. um, I started I started just like meeting some paleontologists. Oh wow! <laughs> and um, you, you do a science comic, you. you surprise me um but uh yeah it's it's um and i got i got into it again i, I had not realized how much progress it made because we're, we're kind of in a, a, a another dinosaur renaissance right now because um the technology and the methods for studying fossils is much more advanced now so you, you know you have things like methods that can determine the color of feathers oh, uh, things like that and um just, just, there's a lot of new information that's available that is really exciting. Yeah, it, it just kind of like you go back to the first movie again and you see like the measures they were taking to just see the skeleton of the raptor. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, nope, that's just uh, that's chump change right there. Like we can yeah. we can get in there, man. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's my I don't know what my current obsession is, uh, but. Uh, it's not Lord it's, of the Rings anymore. Or... Not right now. I got to take a break. But it, it has been Korra, but Korra uh, ended, so I have to. I have to ease out. How um, How have you been dealing with the the loss of Korra at this point? It's good. It was a wonderful ending. It, uh, it was beautiful. For a lot of reasons, and uh, yeah, I, I think that Korra um, Korra is funny too because going back to what I was saying, how I think my favorite things are things that are flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Korra more than Avatar. Uh huh. By the fact that it is much more imperfect, and it's fun to think about the bad choices they made mm-hmm. in certain elements. And I'm not talking like a mystery science theory ironic look. I think Core is a fantastic show. Yeah. But I just think that it's, you know, this don't have to look far to have people, you know, with certain storytelling complaints. Oh, yeah. And Season two is pretty much the, the agreed season, upon, like, uh, the yeah. The gas leak year. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like season four of, of a community, you know. It's mm-hmm. like, we don't talk about that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, but yeah, and even then, like I think there's some good things in there. Oh, and like, it's yeah, it's just like as a, it's neat to see. I like it when creators are trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that Core is a really cool example because they're they're doing something that's 
I think, a lot more ambitious than Avatar was. Avatar's, I think, an essentially perfect show. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. But Core is really neat because it's not their baby. It wasn't the thing that they planned for years and years and years. And here they are really trying to do a more adult story, and it's just neat to see the process. Yeah, and and, and I agree with you on that level because I think I, I identified more with Korra, not just because she's a female character or anything like that, but it was just the, the, the lengths that they were going to f- to fill the world in a lot more. Um, to explore, like, okay, well, if you've got an advanced society, where can bending go? Like, the different styles and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of lamenting about it going just to comics, like one more comic to wrap it up, I guess. Yeah. It's like, bending isn't something you can really visualize as well in comics. Yeah. It has to be animated or else it's just like, I'm not going to get the full effect or the wow factor of yeah, metal bending. I, I actually... not long ago and I think they're very good comics but I, I just like you know this just doesn't this doesn't work with that animation this is one of those examples of like it just doesn't it doesn't have the same effect because it was meant to be animated it wasn't yeah. meant to be a comic some some comics and animated things can go back and forth but mm-hmm. uh, I feel like you, you lose you lose a lot when you um, when you remove the animation well, and even with um, with comic books, it's like you you can either retain the aesthetic of the orig- of the cartoon, or you find a, an artist who can make motion, I guess, yeah, work yeah, a lot better. Really have to, they'd really, I feel like they'd really have to change it up. And I think with the Avatar comics, they pretty much stick to the aesthetic of the show. Yeah, and I think I think that's where it kind of fails like, because it's it's so much more. Um, it, it works much better in animation with that style. So if you're going to go comic book, you're like, okay, find someone who can kind of create that illusion yeah. Um, better. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's 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 definitely um, yeah. I, I think that I think it's tough when you do licensed comics too because mm-hmm. they want they want it to look like the the big property that they're that they're coming from. Yeah. But a lot of times it isn't the smartest thing to do. Um, it's why, like, if you ever looked at the art of, like, the Buffy comics, it looks kind of creepy because everyone's trying to be really photorealistic with it. Yeah, like, I can't these really. These are what the actors look like. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. I, yeah, that's that's one of the things that does turn me off from comics like that where I'm just like, I when you're in a comic book format, I expect it to be more illustration. Yeah. Um, I, it's like I've never been that big of a fan of Alex Ross's art. Me neither, really. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's too much. It, yeah, it just goes too much into the realistic for me, where I'm like, comic books have their own reality and their own aesthetic, and then real life is over here. Uh, I don't want the two to mix so much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, Alex Ross is funny because I think he's a great illustrator, and he's mm-hmm. not a good cartoonist because being a cartoonist is different. Yeah, um, and it's 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 the same reason like it's hard to make a photo comic. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because if you take just photographs of, like, scenes, it can be... People have done it well. Like, Chris Yates, I think, is really good at it. Um, but it's hard to do because a photo doesn't capture a moment exactly. Unless you're an amazing photographer. And even then, it's photography. It's not comics. Mm-hmm. And it's... Yeah, realism and detail don't don't mean anything outside of... Just an ends up to themselves sometimes. Definitely. Um, and I, I wanted to go briefly back to, to Cora uh, because... Um, one way in, I sorry uh, one way in which I think that you know uh, dark science um, and core are very similar is uh, the in, in, the inclusion factor. Um, you have Kimiko who is yeah. uh, half white, half you know, not half white, half Caucasian, half uh, Japanese. Yeah. Um, 
And so what's it, what's it been like for you to write not only a female character, but also uh, a woman of color, um, especially in this environment right now? Can I tell you, um, it is, it's, it's funny. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, um, so I, I take the easy way out in a way mm-hmm. because there's two types of way to do ways to deal with race. There's the, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, there's, there's the real life version where you deal with the realities of, um, of prejudice, the realities of, uh, asymmetrical interactions between people of, of gender and color, mm-hmm. or you do the Star Wars approach. <laughs> Lando owns Cloud City. It doesn't matter if Lando is black or white or a woman or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's just, it's Star Wars. It's a different world. Yeah. And I think that both approaches are absolutely necessary. I think you need them in equal parts with different stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've definitely taken the, the Star Wars fantasy approach where race and gender are not issues in my setting. Okay. And I don't mean, and I think sometimes people don't realize how necessary that is for fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so I kind of just roll the dice when it comes to representation. Like I want to make sure this, okay, well, you know, I want to, I want a mosaic of, of different people of different, it's been much more conscious in dark science. Like I really want to make sure there's, there's a lot of different skin tones essentially and genders being represented. Mm-hmm. And, it is just because uh, sometimes people, what I've learned, this isn't something I knew going in, but, you know, if, if, if someone is, like, black, they don't um, always want to read a story that has a black person in it that's about all the shit that a black person has to deal with in real life. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not a fantasy. That's not a, you're, not a, you're not able to escape anything. Yeah, escapism um, is the, like, you know, the ultimate yeah. goal of all fantasy. It's, like, it's why Star Trek's so great. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you have people that the original, even the original 60s one, and the idea was you had people from all different nations or whatever all working together, and that's just, it's an ideal. And you need those ideals. Um, and it's nice, it's nice to have a, a story to read or a story to, to, to see that just doesn't have to deal with that crap. Mm-hmm. And it's, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that you're not, you can't address prejudice, you can't address it in those stories, because, you know, with Dark Sides in particular, I just picked other things from there to be prejudiced about. Um, yeah, being that's, a, that, that's the fun of science fiction. Cyborgs. Yeah, exactly. I mean that that that's where I was going to go with it yeah. too. Is that you know Kimiko because you don't really bring a lot of uh, issues up in terms of her uh, you know her her race. Yeah. It, it's always the cyborg issue. Like that's what she's you know been uh, you know judged by since she arrived in Nephilopolis. Yeah, it's it's you know and if I was doing it in a more realistic setting, she is someone from the she is an Asian woman from a from the Pacific Northwest. Has a, has a history with people in internment camps, mm-hmm. not not a century ago, and it would it would it would color the story differently. Yeah. Um, and i i want I wanted it to be I wanted dark science to address the concepts of bigotry in a way that could could stay. It's, it's the X Men approach, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's that idea. It's Star Trek too. Like you 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 pick a fictional. It's a classic sci-fi thing. You pick a fictional element that people can dispute over, and it drops people's guards about certain things. And because people, you know, a lot of times everyone has racist or sexist or, or whatever um, prejudices, because a lot of times we just don't realize it. And mm-hmm. 
science fiction and fantasy are a way to examine that and without without putting up your shields so to speak and i uh, I've, I've gotten some really lovely um comments recently from uh, trans people um uh, talking about how they really appreciate the way that uh uh kim's prostheses and, and her identity have been uh addressed recently mm-hmm and specifically with the line of, uh, she was being arrested by uh, some, some, for being a cyborg in, a, in the wrong place, she was being arrested by other cyborg poli- police officers. Oh yeah, at the and party. that was a really important thing to me because, um, th- th- and this will be a, an important element in the, in the story of Dark Science about how people who are, oftentimes people who are on the, on the, on the worst end of an oppressive, you know, society, Will, st- will side with that society for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the way it goes. You know, there's, you look back, you see uh, women against suffrage, you know, in the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a part of that, that narrative of oppression. And it was not my intention to be, oh, cyborgs are, what, what cyborgs and Ephelopolis are dealing with, that's what trans people deal with. I, I would, it's never anything that deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and I would never want to speak for, to, for someone's experience and something like that. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I feel that, I guess I should say, I feel that the narrative of oppression and the narrative of prejudice is pretty universal. Like, like it's the same problem. If it's yeah. racism, if it's sexism, it's the same type of problem. And so <laughs> when you use a, a fictional uh, thing like that, it can be a standard for a lot of things. Uh, you look at the X-Men. Uh, originally, it was a, the mutant thing was a standard for racism. But yeah. in the 90s and 2000s, it's a standard for homosexuality um, because it's just that's, that's, that's where it went. There's always and, the surrogate and, metaphor. I mean. Yeah, it's a metaphor, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and then so with, with, the, with the cyborg thing, and, um, I, I mentioned briefly on Twitter, uh, recently I did like a fake newspaper thing for Nephilopolis, and mm-hmm. I wrote that like two years ago. And I did not realize it would be parroting what's going on in the news with um, all the abuses of the police in, uh, in the U.S. right now. Like, mm-hmm. the idea of, like, in, in it I had the, the chief of police go, you know, I'm calling on all cyborgs to, you know, prove that they're one of the good ones, essentially. And, and, and I'm, I'm demanding that they denounce um, denounce the actions of, of this one cyborg that we're trying to arrest. And mm-hmm. that's no different from someone saying that all Muslims should denounce terrorist acts. Like yeah. it's, this, it's, it's just oppression. That's what it is. So you're um, saying that you're Nostradamus. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it just comes to me. <laughs> <laughs> just get a vision and then I put it in the comic and what do you know? <laughs> yeah. Pay dirt. And, and it's, 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 it's exciting to know that I've written something relevant, but it's also depressing that it's the same problem that we're always dealing with. <laughs> History just keeps repeating itself over and over again. Such is life. Uh, That's what I uh, I had to deal with when I was um, studying history in school. It's just being like, oh, we've we've had to go through this again and again and again. Uh, It's awesome. Um, Well, I don't want to end on a downer note here because we've gone a little little bit over an hour. Um, But uh, I I guess just a more lofty question here. Like, um, what what have you really, like, taken away from... uh, from Dresden Kodak, like overall, I mean, up to this point, um, you're obviously not done with it or anything, yeah. but, um, what, what's, what's it kind of, you know, taught you? What have you taken away from your audience? Um, anything like that? Um, I, I, 
Uh, I didn't realize I had it in me to, to, to do anything on this scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that I could have a career like this. Uh, if I told myself 10 years ago that this is what I was doing, I would just be confused. Uh, <laughs> and, and also it showed me that if you're stubborn enough and if you work at something long enough, you know, there's a good chance you might be able to do something with it. But, mm-hmm. but from a more creative standpoint, from an audience standpoint, I've learned that people are a lot smarter than I realized. <laughs> uh, you Isn't just that have great? to treat them as such. Uh, people are kind of brilliant sometimes mm-hmm. and have amazing insight. And the internet has taught me that if if you if you if you start if you start a conversation in a story or wherever with lofty goals or, or just things that are headier than, than, than you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. People kind of step up, and, and you'll you'll learn something from people um, that you didn't learn about them before. And it's I'm I'm kind of a I'm a ruthless optimist, though. <laughs> I um, love that phrasing, ruthless optimist. Yeah, it gets me into trouble a lot. <laughs> but I really I tend I really really try hard to see to see the best in people, and the internet can make you really cynical. And um, I try not to I try really hard these days to not project that too much because it's just it's just the effect of how we interact with the internet. It's not, I don't think it's an inherent disposition, but the, but I, I've just, I've learned through the, a lot of times it's like a mirror where if I, if I try to put my best foot forward, if I try to, to make a story that demands a certain amount of attention or, or, or contemplation, people step up and they, and they, they, people are, I shouldn't say they step up, they reveal themselves. The people who, um, who, who want to, to, to talk about these things, the people who are, moved by these types of things they'll find it mm-hmm. and that's a i think that's a marvelously encouraging thing to discover that's awesome um and uh so as we close uh where can people find you online oh no uh lolcats.biz oh, oh okay no, no, uh, <laughs> at yahoo.com yeah um uh, dresdenkodak.com that's c-o-d-a-k kodak mm-hmm. and um and dresdenkodak.tumblr for Tumblr things. Uh, I have a Patreon too that kind of pays most of my bills now. It's also just Patreon slash Dress and Kodak. Twitter, it's just at Dress and Kodak. Easiest thing in the world to find me on any platform. Uh, but go to my site. That's the best place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be intimidated. If you've never read my comic, don't be intimidated by the by the, the size of it. You can kind of just jump in wherever and you'll figure it out. I believe in you. <laughs> I believe in you. That's great. Um, and uh, for those of you out there who want to know where I am and what I do, uh, you can go at Twitter, darling underscore Sammy, S A M M Y, maniacalgeek.com, and uh, also on Facebook, Maniacal Curls. Uh, once again, uh, or actually for the first time, Aaron, thank you for coming on the show and really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been so great, and uh, hopefully I'll be seeing you at some cons in the future. Sure. Excellent. Uh, well, 